You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows Trio programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former Trio staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with Trio. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In this episode, we have Dr. Rachel Ranbarker. She is an alum of the Trio McNair program at the University of Oklahoma and is currently a researcher for Western Michigan University. Dr. Renbarger is on the podcast to talk about her educational journey, her inspiration to research in education, and why she chose Trio McNair as her research topic. So coming up in just a bit, Dr. Rachel Renbarger. It was a joy to have Dr. Rachel Renbarger on the podcast. We talked about her educational journey, covered a lot of things about uh, personal things, uh, her blog that is up there. You'll get to hear a little blurb about that. Um, and it was exciting to talk to a McNair graduate, uh, talking about their, their experiences and talking about uh, their uh, path and their journey. I'd like to take a second to thank our sponsors, Angelica Vialpando, Rosario O'Reilly, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the podcast. You too can be a patron of the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Head on over to Patreon, select your patron level. Our beginning patron level starts at a dollar a month. One dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. We also have advertising space available. If you want to advertise on this podcast, go to Patreon, select your corporate sponsorship, and we will run your ad on this podcast. Again, a wonderful interview with Dr. Rachel Renbarger, an alum of the Trio McNair program at the University of Oklahoma. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview. Hi, Trio Nation. My guest on the Let's Talk Trio podcast is an alum of the Trio McNair program at the University of Oklahoma and a postdoctoral research with Accelerating Systemic Change Network at Western Michigan University. She earned her undergraduate degree at the University of Oklahoma and recently obtained her doctorate degree from Baylor University. She enjoys walking with her cat, hiking, and traveling when there is not an active pandemic. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rachel Ranbarger. Dr. Ranbarger, welcome to the Let's Talk Trio podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. You are uh, a Trio McNair alum. You know about the Trio programs and everything that, that they bring. So this discussion is going to be super awesome to have with you. And I'm just so excited to, to have you on this podcast and talk about that. Yeah, it's a very meta sort of experience today. <laughs> McNair right. in McNair kind of episode. Absolutely. Uh, so we're going to get to know more about you. So this really, this podcast is uh, about you, about your experiences with the TRIO uh, McNair program, but also kind of giving us your origin story. And that's what I'm excited to really get to get to uh, as far as this podcast is concerned. You might regret that, but I'm looking <laughs> forward to it as well. <laughs> So I like to what we'd like to do in the podcast is give some warm up questions to the guests. Um, twenty twenty was a very interesting year for educators across the nation and the world. How did this pandemic affect your work, and what were some things that university colleagues shared with you about working away from their office? That is, it feels like almost ten years ago. It feels like we've been in this pandemic forever. So I would say. When it first started, people were so excited to be working from home. You know, they were showing off their different pajama pants and things. <laughs> right. As to like now, like I have no work-life balance. I'm thinking about emails at 10 p.m. Even though before they had, <laughs> you know, turned things off and left mm -hmm. the office. Mm -hmm. So now, some of my colleagues, I'm in an international mostly national sort of organization, Accelerating Systemic Change Network, as you mentioned. So these people are used to being on Zoom all the time. But for the folks that aren't, they're feeling super fatigued. They're ready to not see a screen. And so working away from their office, they just want to see people without having to, you know, wave at them at the end of their Zoom sessions or just have a mm -hmm. quick coffee break. I think right now, most of my colleagues are having a really hard time with just being online um, and trying to get back into nature. Thank goodness it's almost spring and summer so that we can go outside and not be, you know, frozen. But that's what, that's what it's really changed for us is we miss students. We miss being around people. And so it's really impacting our heart and soul too. Absolutely. Absolutely. As so for this pandemic, what about you specifically? Do you, I know you've said earlier that you, you're checking emails at 10 p.m. What other aspects of the pandemic has affected your life? Well, it's been actually super strange for me because my husband and I, we got married March 8th of 2020. Oh. And it was a destination wedding in mm -hmm. Kauai. And there were no cases, really, at that point. You know, it was only in Washington and stuff. Right. and you know, the course of our honeymoon, it really started unraveling. And then by the time we got home, it's, it was a pandemic and it was oh actually, gosh. you know, said to be a pandemic. So for yeah. my personal life, I've not been away from my husband for over a year of our marriage, which is insane. Right. Um, doing, we just had ERA uh, about a week ago and doing that from my office while trying to do my full-time job at the same time, mm -hmm. that's been rough because there's no, oh, I can't join that Zoom meeting. Mm -hmm. People aren't doing that anymore because yes, you can. You're at home. Like, well, I'm, yeah. yes, I'm technically home, but my brain is somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, the harder side of it, but 
we moved to North Carolina last year and, you know, we're building a garden, which is really amazing. And having time to check on the little plants throughout the day has been great. We have cats. I love cats. And they've gotten a lot snugglier because they're used to us being home all the time. So there are some big upsides, although I can't really imagine what they're going to do when we, when we start going back into the office. There might be a little mini revolt in our house. We'll see. But it's been wild. I truly can't remember what life was like before, though. Well, the good parts are that our cats are loving us being home. They're super snuggly these days. They love having us. Uh, we have a garden and we have them. And so we are building this sort of like mini eco structure of goodness within this crazy world. So good and bad. And also I, I work from home fully. My husband is a band teacher, so he's going to be in person, uh, but oh, I never yeah. have to wear real pants. So it'd be great. <laughs> you just I'm have to look professional, right? From the top and <laughs> could be in pajamas and shorts and doesn't matter. Exactly. With a cat on my lap. It'll be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's been over a year since the country went on a lockdown of sorts. Uh, how did you experience that in your own personal life? And I know you were talking about the wedding, your marriage, and uh, congratulations on your, um, uh, on your marriage, by the way. Um, and then that moving, the, the, the aspect of moving, that must have been like a difficult transition. It was awful. I do not recommend moving in a pandemic. We have three cats, two. And so this, we were moving last summer and we're not going to fly, obviously, because everyone was very scared of that at that time. We didn't really know what was going on. So we had three cats and two humans in one car going oh. from Texas to North Carolina. Oh my goodness. 18 hours. Well, we were going to have two cars, but the day before, of course, my husband's car stopped working forever. Oh, no. <laughs> it was... It was just, it's laughable how awful it all went down. Oh, I'm so uh, sorry. The, the moving was awful, but we got to North Carolina. We love it here. We love trees. We love the weather. And we bought a house, which we're millennials. So it's a very new idea for us to even think about us yeah. owning, owning things that are, with <laughs> right. our name on it for the next 30 years. It's, right. a, it's a new world. Um, so it's, yeah, I don't want to think about 2020 much because it was so hard, but I'm hoping now that we're in a sort of home stretch. I get my second vaccine shot on Wednesday and I'm over right the moon now. excited. Yeah, I I've got to ask, uh, is it Moderna, uh, Pfizer, yes. Johnson & Johnson? Moderna. Right on. Yeah, my awesome. friend got the J&J. I don't, I'm too anxious to be thinking about that too much these days with all not I'm I do statistics that's yeah. my thing I'm a quantitative yeah. methodologist and even for me the news keeps trying to convince me that it's a bad thing these mm. blood clots even though you know it's only a handful of people but my anxiety is like well you should think about these outliers Rachel of course it's going to happen to you and your friend I'm like no brain that's not how it works we know numbers. Let's, we know reason. Yeah. But no. I'm yes, so, yeah, Thursday, I'm going to be out of business. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it must be hard to kind of turn off that quantitative aspect of or a side of your brain. It is. I'm also, well, as I mentioned, my husband's a band director, so he doesn't 
care one shit about numbers or statistics and all of this <laughs> research. He doesn't care. Um, so thankfully through him, I've learned to kind of tone it down in front of normal people. My only, you know, when I'm around my people, I geek out really hard and then rein it in mm-hmm. the rest of the time. But yeah, it is very hard. I am skeptical of every single data point, every source. Mm. I go check citations mm. for everything it's a little too much but yeah i guess that's what happens when you get a phd they just train you that nothing is real <laughs> nothing is real <laughs> yeah um yeah do your homework but on steroids yeah wow um so you were talking a little bit about uh going into lockdown and the move uh, transition how that was difficult um after all that kind of settled down during the quarantine did you pick up any new skills or hobbies I tried. I tried really hard. I wanted to be, you know, a baker. I did try needlepoint. I did one. It says take no shit. And it is so cute, but it took me like That's seven awesome. months to finish. <laughs> you need to send us a picture. I will totally do that. I love it. Yes. Um, so I tried that. I tried calligraphy, uh, which went actually much better. I'm not super crafty, but it was pretty fun. I did start an online store like a red bubble like creating stickers and t-shirts and things Mm -hmm. just so I could have first gen and PhD swag that I would actually want to use because whenever I was in grad school like this is ugly please no one give me any gifts that look like this I'm (laughs) I'm super judgmental (laughs) of that stuff so I just created my own that was my idea like to create a second job Uh, but really now I just go back to video games. I'm back to playing Stardew for way too many hours of the day. Mm. Um, yeah, that I'm listening to uh, audiobooks that aren't for school or that aren't academic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, going back to my roots, I guess I'd say with those are my new new hobbies. The Rachel Post PhD who can enjoy things again. Yeah. Hobbies. Yeah. That, that is awesome. Uh, so you mentioned video games and audiobooks and books in general. Uh, what non-academic books are you currently into? Ooh, I just read the book for the Nerdette Book Club. It's mm. NPR out of WBEZ Chicago. And it was Piranesi by Susanna Clark. A very different from what I'm used to, but it was so good. Highly okay. recommend The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, another amazing one. Um, the audiobook I'm listening to now is actually all about quinceañeras by Julia Alvarez. Oh, so yeah. I'm learning a lot, uh, not academic, but it is nonfiction. Awesome. I think just like you, I started picking up more books as well. And mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I'm curious to hear about what people are reading uh, during the, the lockdown and the quarantine. So yeah. Tell me your recs. I would love to hear them. Oh yeah. So uh, my, one of my friends, a uh, good friends, Jeff, uh, Jeff Naputi, if he's listening, uh, he, uh, he recommended Leviathan Wakes. He started me in the Expanse series for science fiction and I was so drawn to it. And then uh, Goodreads recommended another book uh, Black Sun. And I read that and Rebecca Roanhorse, oh my gosh, she created a wonderful world. Uh, it, it's a non-colonial perspective of what would happen of if indigenous peoples run, ran, ran their world. 
and it was magnificent. I loved it. It's, it's a world of magic and just amazing. I'm going to become your friend and then stalk all of your, your reads then because oh, please. Like you have good taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will credit my friends because they have uh, another friend of mine, uh, Jordan Irvin. She turned me into this like, oh, now I got I to find the next book. And mm-hmm. she recommended the app and it's been recommending a good steady stream of books. So right now I have 44 books on my saved list. And my mm-hmm. budget only allows for two books a month. So I get that little bitch <laughs> of like, can I buy more? <laughs> yes, I am absolutely that person. Uh, yeah. My Goodreads doesn't give me good recommendations. And oh. my friends aren't really sci-fi people too often. So I'll come your way because I've heard great things for The Expanse. But I just, I don't know. Things that have been turned into shows, I want to kind of mm. leave them out. Like I didn't read Harry yeah. Potter until they were all done. Yeah, I, I just wait too long. So I'll take your advice, though. That sounds the black sun, black sun, black sun, like S U N. It is wonderful, beautiful book. Uh, and the expanse, I'm, I'm with you right there. I postpone watching any of the TV show, and, and I know they're coming out with the book number nine. That'll be the final one of the series. I think that'll be it. I just finished book number two. It's Caliban's War, and I was just blown away by the twist. It was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So it was great. Man, see, I'm a, I'm. A little bit allergic to commitment so series are also yeah once i don't do but i have time now to do it i think we all have too much time on our hands to do it (laughs) that is true we do have time yeah another netflix series (laughs) right right i mean you can't go wrong with netflix though i mean it does come up occasionally with some good series it gave us tiger king right it yes oklahoma that's where I'm from. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Right down the road. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> another thing is, so you own a blog, and you update it occasionally, right? Can you talk to us about that? I can't believe you found that. I don't know. <laughs> um, you reminded me that I need to do something with that. Mm. So it used to be for a good reason. I was a TA for this statistics class and I would get the same questions over and over by my students. Like, okay, here are the steps. They're on this website. Go look at them. It's there for you, you know, instead of Canvas or wherever where they lose it or things like that. And then I studied abroad a few times. And so I wanted, mm-hmm. you know, people back home to see what I was up to a little bit braggy, but mostly just so I didn't have to deal with emails so I was using it for that and since then oh man I just it's like a very nerdy diary like I'll Mm. talk about my nemesis and stuff in the one next to my bed table but then like (laughs) everything else goes here yeah yeah and I don't know why it's still on the internet it's probably gonna haunt me very soon (laughs) I I was fascinated uh, to be perfectly honest uh so right before I have guests come on the podcast i try to do as much research as i can um so that way i'm not asking some dubious questions you know like well are you a trio alum i'm not sure so right i don't want to seem like unprofessional so i had to do my research and then when we were taking notes and i was like rachel i found this on your blog you're true mcnair right i think I, f- I found it on your cv or something on your blog so i just wanted to make sure you know right like yeah so that, that's just me being the creepy researcher that I am on the background. Thorough. I'll just say you're thorough. <laughs> thorough. Yeah, it's 
it's not probably going to help me get a job in any way, shape or form. But Mm. I did more recently update it with like strike for black lives. And Mm. Mm -hmm. there were some different academic movements happening last year, all about racial justice. And Mm -hmm. as a white person, like I don't need to be in these conversations, but I do need to do stuff. Um, I need to be helping my white colleagues and staying quiet otherwise. And so I felt like "Mm, no one's going to see this blog and it will help me stay accountable. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I've done anything. Most of my learnings about racial justice and all of of my basically maturing since Mm -hmm. then has been in the one of my nightstand. But other than that, I would not take anything on it too seriously. Okay. Uh, would you plan on reviving it and start posting on it just occasionally? If people still read blogs, sure. I mean, <laughs> podcasts are the new blogs, right? That is true. That is so true. That's what I've heard. Yeah. This is a much better medium, I think, to get to people. My job now, they still do blogs, but it's more of an academic Ah short stint of we're just giving you the information, but we don't want to write a full paper. Uh, And I definitely don't want to do that. I would be happy to write blog. I can talk all day, write all day, but I don't think anyone wants to hear it. So if there's a reason for me to, I absolutely would. Well, maybe start a, yeah. Well, maybe start a podcast blog, a podcast where you update (laughs) occasionally with your musings and thoughts. I can see you thinking about it. Yeah, I think that you think much more of me than you might need to. I'm just a a normal person. I don't know if I have too much insight to give. Besides, of course, about me there, which we will will talk about later. Oh, absolutely. But other than that, I could talk about cats for a long, long time. (laughs) I, you know, uh, cats cats are fascinating. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. You'll be surprised with the niche audience that you can achieve on a podcast. (laughs) That's true. I shouldn't discount humans. We are a weird bunch. We are. I have audiences listening internationally. Like they don't know about these trio programs, but they're listening internationally and they love what we're, what we talk about uh, because they don't have programs like trio in their countries. Um, One recently I had a, a feedback from someone from Brazil saying this exists and i was like yeah and they're like our government doesn't do anything like that it's like oh okay wow is it because they don't have systemic inequities that force us to do things like this i should be asking those critical questions but i'm i'm very vain and i just accept the feedback as as it comes (laughs) well yeah you're like of course you would find me this is amazing all of these stories are fabulous thank you brazil take it away yeah share it with people so I should I be asking those, I should be asking those critical questions. I'm just, I spent most of my time abroad in Europe and it really made me so much more angry about the, the systems that we have here in the U S hmm. like, Oh, I got sick and I got to go to the doctor for five euros and they didn't make me wait. They didn't ask me any questions. Mm-hmm. My copay is $25. And that's with insurance. What nonsense is this? Oh, no. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So now I'm like, anytime I get to like rally against the federal government, 
um, or just basically the inequities that we have in the United mm-hmm. States. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna shove that in there. Absolutely. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> we took a veer, and I think we're gonna stay on it just a little bit longer <laughs> because it, it surprised me, right? Like all of last year, I felt like people uh, were talking about we should get some sort of uh, payments for damages mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. pandemic, right? And then people yep. were talking about a stimulus, and then that chorus grew louder and louder and how politicians were playing games with people's lives and really stalled any sort of progress. And it's a surprise to me that we've only received three stimulus payments so far. And Mm -hmm. I know there are people out there still hurting. Yes. Yeah. My cousin, one of my cousins is a bartender in Oklahoma. Like she needs to be open. She needs many people Mm -hmm. and it's not just food, right? She. She needs people to lick her up and not the, not the priorities, right. Of the government. Um, But yeah, how is she supposed to pay rent if she's not having a job for a year? Absolutely, It's not, it's not going to happen. And many people fall through the cracks like that. And I'm sure you've seen just how different it is by genders too Mm -hmm. um, for folks. And I'm hoping that we come up with solutions that aren't just $600 there eight hundred dollars a year and maybe mm-hmm. something a little better of a blanket safety yeah. net i'm not sure what that'll be that's far I, I, above my pay grade but I, i'm so glad you're already thinking about those things right that uh, other and i know other podcasts do a whole lot better job than i do about talking these issues but aoc had a uh, alexander mm-hmm. ocasio cortez had a great take on the federal government issuing blanket mortgage payments and blanket mm-hmm. rent payments for people that could be struggling with rent. Like that would be one way to stimulate yeah. the economy and help people use that what would have been rent money to stimulate the economy even further. So yeah. I know we could we could talk about this for hours. Yeah, but, sorry. You know, no, no, no. That's my fault. I, I keep like I want to stay on this just a little <laughs> bit longer. But um, I, I'm just amazed by right like how trio students when they go and experience college and they come out with their ideas and say, you know what, we could be doing things a little bit better. I see mm-hmm. what's happening around us. And you have some great critical questions about systemic issues surrounding not only colleges and universities, but right in the world of politics and how uh, people are either forced into poverty or stay in that realm of poverty because yep. of political uh, decisions. So, and this is a, a very terrible segue, but we want to really <laughs> more to talk about you. So what was your childhood like growing up and tell us, yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it's not such a terrible segue because I am only here because of federal programs. My parents split up when I was, you know, about one super little, never really remembered them being together, but I lived with my mom after that. So single mom, it was just me and her. And we were on section eight. We had food stamps and, I know like for listeners out there, this is not to, you know, make you feel sad for me. This is just the reality of many Americans and I'm one example of it. Um, And I didn't really know what it was like. I just knew that we had to buy certain kinds of food and we could only use it with this card. And it, after the first of the month, that's when we could go, you know, fill up our fridge in my head as a kid. This was just how it was for everybody. Uh, as I'm older now, I'm like, holy smokes, if I didn't have, you know, free and reduced lunch at school, there's no way I would have been able to be a good student. There's so many different 
federal ways that I made it out alive and I made it successfully. And I'm so thankful for those programs. But my childhood was pretty boring. It was just me and my mom. I was such a nerd. I've always been such a nerd. <laughs> I I would spend all day every day either playing with Beanie, beanie Babies or mm. reading books. Mm. That was pretty much it. So my childhood was living in this super small town in Oklahoma. Some once in a while going to see my dad. He he's a cattle rancher mm-hmm. and you know, 1,500 acres, I would go ride four-wheelers and stuff. But oh, wow. other than that, it was pretty boring, pretty boring childhood. Um, but, you know, as as the years went on, it got a little bit tougher. I would mm-hmm. say I, as a middle schooler in particular, you start noticing things. You start noticing mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not wearing the right clothes. I don't have the right haircut. I need to have this special backpack and be with the cool kids. You know, all of these different uh, ways to show that you're in or popular. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that. So then it kind of got to be pretty hard. But by that point, I found some friends who were just like me, super nerdy, by the rule book, law abiding citizens. Um, The only time I ever got detention was whenever I... (laughs) <laughs> forgot my book in my locker and I cried about it for like a week. Oh no. I mean, like I, I remember sitting in detention just like crying my eyes out because I had done something wrong and I wasn't sure that Mr. Spencer would ever like me again because I was such a terrible student. Like oh, that's no. the kind of kid that I was. Yeah. Um but I was also in this school where they didn't really know what to do with me sometimes. Like the librarian would tell me that I wasn't allowed to read the books that I wanted to read because they were above my reading level. Mm-hmm. And I had a teacher just put me in the hallway because I already knew how to do math and I wouldn't shut up and answer all the questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she just put me in the hallway, like, Rachel, go do this workbook. I was happy doing that, honestly, but it was very different sort of academic experience that I think other people had, but I was fine with it, I think, for the most part. But yeah, childhood, my dad, my dad was in and out of prison, in and out of rehab. And so for me, it was just me, my mom, and my cat, and just doing our own little thing in small town, Oklahoma. Right on. So you said you, um, that school was something that you just got, it sounds like it, you naturally gravitated toward. So academically inclined for sure, right? A hundred percent. I felt like I found my place there by... <laughs> My family is the opposite. They are all sports people and they like hunting. Mm. They can throw balls and catch them. I cannot do any of that. Um, so I was like the black sheep of the family. So if I could oh, go to school yeah. where all my teachers validated me for being so smart and having done all my homework, then that's where I'd love to be. So I would spend as much as I possibly could at school. I loved it. Right on. Talk to us a little bit about your elementary uh, school experience. I know you talked a little bit about it, about being put in the hallway. Um, were you just very curious as a child? Is, is curiosity something that you just like asked a lot of questions and wanted to know more? Absolutely. I loved investigating. That was my favorite thing. This was before I knew who Nancy Drew was. 
But if I had known who that was, oh, I would have gobbled up everything I knew about Nancy Drew. I love answering questions. Um, to give you an example, I created a scavenger hunt for my own birthday. Oh, right on. Which then I couldn't even do it. I was just watching my friends do a scavenger hunt that I created for my birthday. Like that's the mm. kind of puzzle, puzzle investigative curiosity kind of girl. Yeah. Yeah. Very nerdy. That like is said. so awesome though. Like to have people at your birthday party and you're creating puzzles for them to solve <laughs> at your birthday party. I, I find that is very unique and awesome. I did have good friends. Yeah. They, they, they knew that I was weird, but they accepted <laughs> me for it. Those are the I good think. types of friends. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. So awesome. Love it. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about middle school and that experience. You said that you started noticing uh, some differences here and there. I would like to just take a moment to kind of more allow you to elaborate and talk to us a little bit. So what, aside from the clothing, right, what other, what other differences were you noticing? Well, I, this is when I started really hanging out with that good group of friends that I mentioned, and all of them had two-parent households. They had houses. Mm -hmm. They ate dinner together. They, uh, some of their parents went to college, not all of them, but they had this sort of nuclear family dynamic where they mm -hmm. had activities that they did. They went to sporting events or they went to church together. They did all of these things. They had nice cars multiple kids there were just all these differences where I didn't feel like I was one of them because I didn't have the same structure like, how am I like you even though my life looks so different there's a lot of questions like that uh, but they just accepted me anyways and they also this is really when summer camps ramped up you know people went on vacations they went to church camp they also went you know I don't know camping I didn't do any of that um I didn't even know what a vacation was like, where are you going why why are you doing that don't you have to yeah. work uh yeah. these kind of questions once I start getting involved in church and things the church paid for me to go to some of these camps mm -hmm. um so then I started feeling embarrassed that adults knew I was so poor that I needed help going mm -hmm. to these camps mm -hmm. But I wanted to go to camp so bad and fit in so bad that I didn't even care. Right. It was a lot of those type experiences where I just pretend to fit in until someone called me out on it. I felt like, you know, the imposter syndrome that we talk about in either grad school or undergrad for first gen students. I felt that yeah. uh, all the way in middle school. Like someone's going to catch me and tell me that I don't belong here, but I'm just going to keep pretending that I do. Right. Thankfully, they let me. They let me hang around all the way through high school. <laughs> and very much right. That high school must have been a whole different experience because um, high school's definitely one of those where you start solidifying in your mind who you think you are, mm -hmm. and uh, you start becoming drawn to particular interests. Um, what things were you involved in in high school? And yeah, wh what did you like or dislike about that high school experience? Yes, I became even feistier than before. I loved school, so I would do anything that I could to stay in school. So every club that didn't cost money was really what it boiled down to. So that was Spanish club. It was National Honor Society. I really, though, 
fell in love with student council. And I don't, I still don't really understand why. I loved the idea of doing things for people, creating these things that people could rally around. But generally that was just dances in high school and I didn't like to dance. So I'm not really sure what I was in it for. Um, besides the fact that we had our faculty sponsor was the librarian and I loved her so much. I wanted Aww. to just hang out with her all the time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those leadership type activities, that's really what I gravitated to um, along with, you know, academic team and the, the nerdier ones as well. But high school for me, it was, if the doors were open, I wanted to be there. I wanted to do things that my friends were in. A lot of my friends were in band, but I couldn't afford it. I wasn't sporty enough. I was not going to try. Um, but I could, thankfully, being bad at sports meant that I didn't have to pretend I couldn't pay for sports. Whereas band, <laughs> I, I was like, uh, yeah, I'm a nerd. I should definitely be in band. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how to write that off. That was a little bit harder, but everything else I loved. I yeah. loved every single minute of it. That kind of, oh, yearbook. Oh, and yearbook. Yearbook right was on. my favorite too. That's awesome. Yeah. I got to be senior editor. Ooh. And it was a, it was a hell of good edition, if I say so myself. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you had your creative brain behind that. So absolutely. <laughs> um, if you were to go to band, like, let's say you were able to do a high school all over again, would you, mm. cho- what, what instrument would you play? Oh, that's a good question. One of the stereotypes about girls who are my size, which I'm on, I'm right at five foot. Um, the stereotype is that they go for like flute or piccolo. So I absolutely oh, yeah. would not pick those. Mm-hmm. I would fight that. I would try to play probably tuba, knowing tuba? my high school oh, wow. self. Yeah. I like fighting the norm. Um, but I also, I like a good brass instrument. So probably would have gone for saxophone mm. or trumpet, I think. Yeah. Right. I can see you doing trumpet, saxophone, something a little bit jazzy, uh, <laughs> or even tuba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not strong enough, I don't think, either, which would be a bit hard. <laughs> I'm sure you would be able to pull it off. You'd find a way, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point uh, in high school, uh, a lot of students start kind of picking their college class, or not college classes, sorry. They start picking colleges to go to. Um, did you know what type of colleges you wanted to attend or what colleges you identified to make it on your list? My gosh, I had no idea. Honestly, I knew that all of my friends were going to college, but there wasn't really a conversation of how they picked them. They just knew they were going to certain places. And I, I still don't know why mine was only the ones that I had heard of. So in this small town in Oklahoma, being first gen, the schools that I knew of were the ones that were associated with football. So in Oklahoma, that meant you either had to go to University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma State because that's the rivalry teams mm-hmm. if you want to go to a big school. Um, actually, I went to uh, my counselor, my guidance counselor, and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about going to this smaller school because somehow they found me. They contacted me. I was an academic all-stater. Mm-hmm. They found me and they said that they pay for my tuition, so I should go to that one, right? 
I hadn't even applied to this school. I uh, hadn't even heard of it. Mm. Uh, she's like, no, you're not going there. Mm. Like, Why not? They said they'd pay for it. Isn't that a good thing? Mm-hmm. She's like, no, you're going to the University of Oklahoma. Okay. How do you know? She's like, just trust me. You, right now, you are a big fish in a small pond. I think you should be a big fish in a big pond. Um, and I, I didn't know what that meant, mm-hmm. but I was honored that she would call me a big fish. So that's where I, I was like, okay, I will apply to this one school. That's what I did. I just applied to the University of Oklahoma. It was 15 minutes down the road. Mm-hmm. So I figured if it fails, like it's not really that big of a problem to come back home. It'll be fine. And thankfully it was fine, but it was wild that someone let me get away with thinking that <laughs> without talking to me what college actually meant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how. Yeah. Uh, for, and, and this is kind of a shared experience because uh, when my director started talking to, to me about college, when we first she, she introduced herself and she started think, saying, have you thought about college? Uh, there was this distance. Like I couldn't picture college. I couldn't I'm like, college really um and then much like your experience uh it was this conversation about like well your your college quality you can go to college and it was still that disconnect of like do do i do i seem like a college person like i do i give off that vibe i'm like i wasn't so sure so yeah it's like we had these different markers over our head that they could see yeah yeah you go to college you go to this college i don't know how you know this within me yeah. Which as an adult, now I get, mm-hmm. I know why some would be better in smaller environments or in, you know, community college to four-year transition. I totally get that now, but like that was definitely not laid out for me in any way. Right. Right. So uh, Dr. Rachel Renberger, we're going to take a quick podcast break. We'll be right back with Dr. Rachel Renberger again with the University of Oklahoma Trio McNair Award. back with Dr. Rachel Renberger, who is from the University of Oklahoma uh, Trio McNair program. Uh, Rachel, thank you again so much for so far sharing your story uh, at the very beginning part of this podcast. We're now transitioning into about your college experience. And you've told us you had a counselor tell you uh, you're very much a big fish in a little pond and how the University of Oklahoma would be much better suited for you. And you were also telling us about how First, you initially didn't know how other adults see that in us as, as young adults, but now that you're an adult yourself and looking back, that you can see those markers. Um, yeah, so we want to know, what was your college experience like? And yeah, what was your experience? 
I really enjoyed my time at OU and thankfully I found some good groups and good places, but in the beginning it was so hard. It was such a culture shock. I remember being on campus, driving up, you know, unloading all of your stuff. And I had, I don't know, maybe one or two handfuls of things. I didn't know what I was supposed to bring. And people are what looked like unloading an entire apartment. Yeah. And I was thankfully rooming with one of my friends from high school. So she and her mom helped me figure out what to bring and things. But I would... I would get so frustrated because I felt like I was from a different world. You know, our sweet mates, they were two sorority girls. Um, And I don't really have too much insight as to what what sorority life is like. It's not for me. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. for them, they would scoff at us for wanting to go to the cafeteria um, and use our meal points and things where the calf, as we called it at OU, was like the best thing that ever happened to me. It mm-hmm. was this giant place and you can have, I don't know, 15 different kinds of cuisines. They had this entire bakery section from like a bougie, bougie place, mm-hmm. delicious mm-hmm. cakes. You know, it was like eight layers of chocolate and stuff. And if they were scoffing at that, I truly didn't understand what more they wanted in life. And like, these were the people that I was around and that were on my hallways. Mm-hmm. And so that was really hard for me because I felt like I'm getting the richest part of life. I have this roof over my head that's stable and it's warm. Um, I get to be here to learn. That is the best privilege of all. I loved that. Um, and then these people were just partying and having made service for their five square foot part of the room. I just couldn't understand. Uh, so there was definitely culture shock. I did have some also mild anxiety pop up whenever I had my first hard class. Mm-hmm. So whenever I got to the university of Oklahoma, I, I guess didn't have to take math as a, an English education major. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have placed in, you know, Calc 2 or whatever. But for some reason, I hadn't done the same thing for my English classes. And so I joined or I started my first week of class. And she was telling them on how to complete a full sentence and how to write a five-paragraph essay. And I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) This this I know I I have down because I loved writing. Um, But I didn't even know that you could clep out of classes. Um, so I had to learn that just on the fly, you know, Mm -hmm. the first week of class, um, things like that were really hard. And one of my friends who I just happened to know, she's like, Oh, I'm in this composition class. It's the next one. You should just join me in that class. Mm -hmm. Little did I know this would be my demise. This was my first taste of college because he was all about grading on the curve. So there would only be two students in the class who would get an A. Um, doesn't matter how well the rest of us did, only two would kind of get the A. And that really shook me to my core. <laughs> it was just not based in reason. It was mm. not for any reason other than 
mainly he just loved being one of those professors that everybody talked about, I think. Um, so things like that. Yeah. I really didn't understand what college was like, even though I tried so hard and I still wanted to be the best. And I'd been valedictorian in high school. So I'm like, surely I'll be the best here too. Ha, no, absolutely not. And so it questioned a lot of uh, my identity in the beginning. And I had to figure out like how to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got involved in, you know, service organization and different religious stuff and different friend groups. And I found my way eventually, but it was certainly rocky uh, in the beginning. For first-generation students, when we experience, and I've had my share of professors that way, where they relished on yes. students that, right, that didn't do very well. Um, and some even took pride in being able to fail students or having a high failure rate of students. Yes. And, and that I, boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. Why would you want anyone to fail? Exactly. If you... If you have students who are failing, that means you did a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from the education world, it's like, no, <laughs> it's a two-way, like there are two to tango in this. Right. It made me so upset. Yeah. yeah, I'm still getting worked up right oh, now. Oh no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to like <laughs> <laughs> all these years later, I just want to shake my fist at him. Oh no, I I there was one professor in particular uh in my psychology course where he took pride, right? I, the first day he said, if you do not pass this test with an 80% or better, I recommend you drop this class. And I, I took the test and I didn't even bother to see what I scored because oh. I just felt so anxious about the test and I didn't know much about it. And I knew I was like, I don't know this. I don't. So I just decided to drop the class the next day. And I was just like, no, I'm not having it. Nope, nope, nope. And <laughs> Yeah. These kind of people are common. And I, w- I don't, I think like all of us who have been to undergrad in some shape or form have had people like that in our lives. Uh, and I'm, it's just, we're doing a disservice to our students that oh, absolutely. This is the kind of experience you're getting rather than the vast majority of them who want their students to succeed. And Absolutely love the topic and all of that. Absolutely. I I don't want to dwell too much on this point, but I think that's what, uh, for me, that inspired me to become a success coach for the university I currently work for. Uh, So I mostly work with students that are facing a lot of academic difficulty. Mm -hmm. And it still still surprises me to see that instructors would rather much see their students fail Mm -hmm. and not provide any sort of support. And uh, that's where our office kind of just comes in and says, you know, what type of support can we provide the student and identify, try to identify markers of progress and success. What does that mean? So, yeah, sorry. I don't mean, didn't mean to too much overshare, but I I wanted to get your take and say, Mm -hmm. right. Your educational path was very much about looking into education and asking a lot of questions. Who mentored you through that? Who, who was kind of guiding you through all of that path? That was, a weird situation for me. The mentorship, the reason I wanted to be a teacher was because in high school, as I mentioned, it was a super small school. Um, The only elective that I could take that wasn't sports was creative writing. And I loved science and I loved math. And I was like, ugh, creative writing? I would rather die. No thanks. (laughs) Um, And the principal, I was begging and pleading. I'm like, let me just 
clean the library or something. I don't want to do creative writing. And he wouldn't let me because of some, I don't know, accreditation. They need to make sure their students are actually learning something, blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> um, so I was, he's like, well, just try it. Try it for a week. And if you don't like it, we'll figure something out. Which I mean, maybe he knew secretly because it only took her like three days yeah. to completely convince me to change my career path. Um, oh, wow. Her, her name was Cheryl Panelon. I still talk to her all the time. Um, we're very different. She gave me books that spoke to my life. I had only been reading books about, you know, fictional characters who maybe like To Kill a Mockingbird, whose parents were lawyers or, mm -hmm. you know, these stories that I couldn't relate to, but she put books into my hands that were about poor kids and it made me feel things and mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel things. I was an adolescent. I, I wanted to pretend that I was tough and strong and no one could get to me, even though all of this stuff was happening in my personal life. Uh, but she did. She was just so authentic uh, too. And well, if you get a teenager, authenticity is like the weakness. It's a kryptonite. So mm. I loved being in her class and I learned how to have creative writing be an outlet for a lot of my um, like emotional distress at the time. So I was like, oh, well, she did this for me. I have to pay it forward. I have to be an English teacher. That's the only way. Because mm -hmm. you can't just go to be a creative writing teacher, right? So it's like, I'll just do English. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like, the last conversation I had about it. I told my advisor when I got to college, she's like, here's your degree plan, which tells you all the courses you have to take and all of that. I didn't really speak to anyone about it uh, ever again. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, well, here's a degree plan. I'll just do it. I didn't know that college was for exploring. I thought I mm -hmm. signed up for this, so mm -hmm. I got to stick with it. Mm -hmm. um, I did hear a few times because I was a part of this um, college promise program. You know, they, they'll help pay for you, but you have to go to some of these seminars. And so they were talking about how many hours you need in order to graduate in four years. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. I need to, I can't stay here any longer because then I might have to pay for it. Yeah. I, in my head, I was still thinking like, they're going to find out that I'm not paying for this. Oh, yeah. And I need to just like sneak out of here before <laughs> anyone finds out. <laughs> Trick everybody at admissions. <laughs> Before they figure it out, get out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't even, I saw the bursar building and I would just like do yeah. a wide loop around it, right? Like, I don't even know who I am. Yeah. Because I'm not on the books, I don't think. Um, <laughs> which, as a child, it's so funny. I know a university would never let that happen. Um, mm -hmm. Now. Yeah, so I just... I knew that I couldn't change my major because then I'd have to be there longer. And mm, then if mm. I'm there longer, then I might have to pay for it. And not only that, I need to start making money and helping out. Um, so exploring, pff, no, I've got my degree plan. I'm going to do every single thing that it says, and I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. Um, so my mentors in college, they probably don't know that they were mentoring me. I had some fantastic professors. Yeah. 
um, Dr. Ziegler, Dr. Garofalo from the English department. Oof. Those classes were so hard, but somehow they made it seem like I could do it and I could contribute because mm-hmm. I was no longer a big fish in a big pond. I turned very quickly into a small fish. I didn't contribute in class. I was just like a sponge. I was not comfortable uh, speaking out loud. I definitely was not comfortable going to office hours. Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Mm-hmm. What do I even say to them that's smart sounding? That, that's going to show yeah. them how stupid I am. That seems to be a recurring theme, right? With a, a lot of first generation students when they yep. enter college is this idea that I can't talk to a professor. And I know that's how I felt. It's I can't approach the, the professor, the advisor, because they have such a high level of expertise. And <laughs> yes. I'm going to sound like, please handhold me through my first 101 course because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't want them thinking that I'm not taking this seriously. Right. Um, and that I didn't do the readings. Right. Whatever right. it was. Um, and so they did a good job of teaching that didn't like assume that we had to have already had mm-hmm. eight different classes before that. They're yeah. really good at speaking to where we were. Um, so I loved them. So I, yeah, they didn't really mentor me one-on-one, but I was like worshiping them from afar. Yeah, definitely. And I, I didn't want to be an English professor by any means, but yeah, um, they definitely gave me feedback that made me think that I could survive in college, which is really what I needed. I was like, this, this stuff is hard. I'm reading and writing all the time. I'm tired. I have to have a job. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Um, yeah. So their, their confidence really helped me. And it wasn't until I got into McNair really that I had a, a dedicated mentor. Yeah. Um, and I know we're going to get, Baines. yeah, we're, we're going to get to your McNair story here in just a bit, but I wanted to go back to uh, your path in education um, because it seemed like that was an interest that continued to grow. Um and it, it sounded like you wanted to pursue at least something other than just a bachelor's to continue growing on the <laughs> path. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. What, uh, how did you end up in education? How, why was that a path that you were really passionate about? I, really, the only, the only thing that I can think of was that that was what I had seen. That was the only kind of career that I had seen that college led to. Like I had... Um, teachers who went to college and I had my doctor. Those are like the only two professions that I had ever experienced that I knew you had to go to college for. So I thought those are like my only two choices really. Um, and I, I wanted to be a doctor for a long time, but then I started thinking just how powerful teachers could be after that experience with Panalone. I also knew that um, medical school, we have this idea. I don't know how it got out to be such a big deal in America, but like medical school taking forever and it costing so much. Mm-hmm. Like somehow I knew those two things about being a doctor. I didn't really know anything else, uh, but I knew it taking a long time and it costing a lot of money wasn't going to be feasible for me. So even though I wanted to be one, um, it seemed a lot safer to, to go to education. So that wasn't really about exploring or thinking about other things. It was 
this is the only thing that exists for going to college. Right. And is, is this how, uh, when you started possibly thinking about post undergraduate, is this how Trio McNair came into, into focus or how did you find the Trio McNair program? <laughs> this is probably going to make my previous director. Uh, she's, she will never be mad. She's like the kindest human but if she could get mad, she'd be mad at this statement that the reason I got into McNair was because I had a stipend. <laughs> that, that, that's why I joined. I didn't know, like, I don't even know what a PhD is. Now that I've seen professors, yeah, I'm like, sure, but they're all kind of like wackadoodles. They're mm, mm. really smart, but different league from me. Um, mm. Yeah, I wanted to join McNair because I'm like, I'm broke. I need money. This will pay me to think about things, which sounds yeah. cool. I have no idea if I want to go to grad school, but I can say I am. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm like, yeah, sure, maybe. I knew, but again, I like this degree plan was like, okay, you have to go through all these things, then you go to, to be a teacher. I was like, I'd already committed to that. Yeah. So I'll put grad school like on the docket if I can do that after I teach, mm-hmm. like not straight away. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I think I might've mentioned that in my McNair interview, but I wasn't super committed to grad school when I was at McNair. Honestly, mm-hmm. I just wanted to get paid to do things like travel to conferences <laughs> <laughs> and eat good food. <laughs> Your motivation sounds very much like a, a upward bound student as well that would looks at a stipend and say, you know what, sign me up. I don't know if college is the thing I want to do, but hey, I get paid to sacrifice a Saturday occasionally. Yeah, it didn't seem like that big of a commitment. No one I had known had ever done it. So I couldn't even ask them if it was a good or bad choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw the email. I was like, okay, yeah, I need money. This says I can get money. I will apply. The end. <laughs> so talk to us about that Trio McNair experience. What did you enjoy most about this program? You talked a little bit about the being able to go to conferences. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I really loved it once I was in it. Um, we mentioned before that I loved, I was always curious and I like to investigate. And so this let me do that. Like it was part of my job to investigate things, which felt really fun. Um, and it was things that I didn't necessarily have to do for class which felt even better. Like there was no grade associated with it. Um, and I was in the honors college. So I had to do an honors thesis. And so it felt like two birds and one stone mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If I have to write a paper, I'm going to get paid for it and it's going to be fun. Um, so my McNair experience, I loved being with people who got it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to tell them what it was like um, to be like rolling my eyes at the, you know, the Porsches in the parking lot. They got it. They understood that was ridiculous. Um, they knew, they knew that they were, um, we always had like these cultural experiences is what she called them. So she would, our director would bring us to try different kinds of food than we were used to. Um, And one of them would be, you know, Mediterranean. Like, I don't even know where the Mediterranean is. Mm -hmm. And 
neither would anybody else in the program. So I didn't feel like the only person in the room anymore that just wasn't getting it. Mm -hmm. We were all in this together in this very weird, crazy world. Um, That was my favorite part. We were, um, we were one group of people who all wanted to do really cool things. We just didn't know how to get there. So it felt like a scrappy bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved that. I also loved that it was um, very structured. Mm. Like if you do this part of the McNair program, then you get $25. If you do this program, then you get $50. Like it was very, there was no guessing. Mm. Um, which I felt like that was all of college. Like we had syllabus and stuff in school, but it still felt like I was supposed to be doing over and above that to either get the professors to like me or to do well in the class. Um, And there was not that with McNair. There was no guessing. Uh, And I really enjoyed that, which that's not all McNair is. Most programs probably even aren't like that, but for me and my director, Mm -hmm. um, her just being a good person, me being around people like me and not having to guess, not having to be like this front of a person anymore. Oh, that felt so nice. It was like taking off your shoes after a long day. Oh, work. nice. You know, yeah. you just get to be you. Yeah, right on. So of this part of the, of the McNair and your experience in it, it sounds like you decided then that doctoral program is certainly in your view now, it was no longer just in the docket. It was something you wanted to do. Um, one, how did you arrive to that decision? And two, uh, what college did you end up choosing? I think it was because I realized that research was really fun and I didn't know how I could keep doing that besides going to grad school to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know what it really even meant to research still. I still wasn't even sure what that meant. Um, So I wanted to find out more because it was really fun what I was able to do so far. Um, But I talked to my advisor, Dr. Baines, who was very supportive um, of me in the entire. (laughs) I can't even open up my honors thesis because I just cringed so hard. It was such a terrible project that I did, Uh, but they were so nice about it Mm. and helping me grow my skills and all of these things. Mm -hmm. But I remember talking to him. And he gave me such, I don't know, just so, so positive about who I could be. I felt like he could see me as this grad student. He was like, yeah, you should apply to Harvard. Sure. You should apply everywhere. Apply wherever you want to. I was like, huh? I don't, sure. I've heard of Harvard. Who hasn't heard of Harvard? But like, I don't know about other schools. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know what that looks like. Yes, my McNair advisor, Dr. Baines, was super supportive. He told me to apply to basically every school that I had ever heard of. He's like, yeah, mm-hmm. apply to Harvard. And me, a first gen, who was not even sold on grad school anyways, like, excuse me, sure, I've heard of Harvard, but like, no, I, will, <laughs> I don't belong there. I don't even know what other grad schools exist. And mm-hmm. my director in her supreme wisdom, made us research different schools uh, for different programs that we think we'd want to go to. We had to see like what their requirements are, who might be good faculty members for us to work with. Mm-hmm. And Baylor wasn't on my list. 
um, I was actually really wanting to go to places like UC Berkeley um, because I wanted to, I was kind of thinking that I wanted to help English teachers, but also I was thinking maybe I could do something completely different because I loved psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, well, I'm not really sure. So I asked Baines if I should be a teacher before I went to grad school. And he said, yes, if you're going to help teachers, you're not going to have any cred with teachers unless you've been a teacher, Ah. which is fair. And as a teacher, I have judged those who have researched us without being a teacher first. (laughs) Fair. Uh, That's fair. Because teaching was freaking hard. Teaching Mm. was like, um, it was unlike anything I'd ever done. I had, I mean, I got certified in English education, Mm. but also I did this program. It's called Breakthrough Collaborative, and it serves marginalized groups. Um, particularly around middle school to help them get into good high schools, ideally to help get them to colleges. Um, And he taught me everything I needed to know about teaching. Uh, It was really hard, but also it was chosen because I got paid to do it Mm -hmm. over the summers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had already chosen my McNair project before I went to breakthrough. Yeah. But after I had done breakthrough, I was like, why isn't this being taught to all teachers? Because they know how to teach, but how am I not getting that from my four-year degree where I'm paying a lot of money to learn how to be a teacher? Yeah, I was was very confused about all of that. Um, So that was kind of rolling around the back of my head. Uh, But then whenever I went to go be a teacher, it was so exhausting. I loved it. Uh, It's the hardest job in the world. Um, compared to getting a PhD, a te- te- being a good teacher is much harder than getting a PhD. Um, I had, I went to go teach back in my home high school, mm-hmm. this small town. And, you know, high poverty. There were so many students who had to work, uh, you know, six, 10 hour shifts after school um, and then would fall asleep in my class. I had parents who would threaten to call the board of education to get me fired on a regular basis. Oh, wow. Regular is not the right word there. It happened a few times. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after that first year of teaching, I was like, yeah, this is hella hard. And no, thank you. Uh, I don't, this can't be teaching because I'm exhausted. Um, and so I, I had applied to Baylor because, well, my brother died whenever I was in undergrad. So I had a stepbrother who was uh, seven years older than me, and he died unexpectedly whenever I was a sophomore at OU. And so this is only a few, two, three years later. I still needed to be close to family, and I didn't want to go too far. And I was not going to take the GRE again because I don't have time or energy to do so. Um, and Baylor's like GRE scores um, were acceptable. Like, I would I would be fine to apply there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, the kicker was I did a an interview at the end of my first year of teaching. I was like, "Hey, sorry, it has to be in May." 
for this interview, which they typically happen before. Yeah. But my advisor, she's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. So I went down for the day with a friend. She was incredible. She had been a former teacher. She was so with it. She was so nice. She drove me around in her car, showing me Baylor. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just an amazing feeling to feel seen by her. She understood what it was like to have all these different experiences. And she's believed in me somehow without even having to (laughs) know me. Um, And by the end of it, I was like, yep, okay, I'm coming to Baylor. I want to work with her uh, because she's legit. But this teaching thing, though, I feel like I've failed and I I don't fail. So I have to do it one more year. So I deferred Baylor for another year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was mostly just because of her, because she was an amazing advisor and she was trying to do the work that I wanted to do really. So I probably should have tried harder, prepared more, all of that to get to a better fitting school, but it turned out, it turned out all right in the end. Well, that's good. I'm glad. And you're in the path that you needed to be on because now we have you on the podcast to talk about (laughs) your doctoral research, which beautiful segue, I think. So you went to Baylor University uh, going into a doctoral program, which definitely please share about your experience on that. But also you decided to write a thesis about a trio program. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. So like I mentioned before, there was that that breakthrough collaborative that taught me how to teach. I was like, why doesn't everyone know about this? That's how I felt about McNair. Like McNair was the reason I got to grad school. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what else um, I could have done. I never would have made it. I didn't have the research preparation. I didn't know what was expected. I wouldn't have taken the GRE because it was expensive. There are just so many different hurdles that it cleared for me. And so whenever I got to grad school, Baylor didn't have a Magnair program at the time. Mm. That's strange. Why are, why are more people talking about this if we're Mm. thinking about equity? Mm -hmm. And so I kept looking into it and there wasn't a whole lot of research being done on it. It was just a thing that existed since 1986. And Mm. they're just, well, as you know, funding for TRIO comes under scrutiny Certainly, you know, uh, every few years or so. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the years where people were talking about like potentially cutting it. I was like, oh, yeah. don't, you, don't you dare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will fight you, people on the Hill. Yeah. Um, and so that's really one, why I wanted to do it because I started looking into it. I'm like, they don't have research on it, but I know it works. I've Mm -hmm. seen it work. And yeah, as a scientist, you're not supposed to have that bias when you go into research. Sure. So I was like, okay, I will be as objective as possible. I will vet this through my advisors and have them read it and all of this stuff. Um, Yeah, I did multiple studies on McNair and everything was positive. So I'm like, okay, here's here's the ticket. Here you go, Mm -hmm. federal government. Keep funding it forever, please, because it's doing a lot of good. Yeah. So the first one, the first study I did was just a systematic review. Like what exists on TRIO, um, specifically McNair, 
I just read everything that existed. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I kid you not, everything had positive things to say about Trio, mm-hmm. about McNair specifically. There was one paper that was like, yeah, it's, it's a great program, but make sure that mentors um, don't suck. Because mm. apparently they had a few, <laughs> a few students who had some yeah. really unpleasant mentor experiences. Oh, no. Yeah. But, but like for me to find that many articles about it and it still be like 100% positive, mm-hmm. like, okay, this is a good sign. So then the second thing I did, I did a meta-analysis, um, which is just looking at the quantitative stuff from those articles mm-hmm. to see like, okay, if we put all of this in one stats bundle, will it say it's doing a little bit of good or a lot of good? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I wanted to figure out. And it said that there weren't too many quantitative studies, unfortunately. Oh, but what we found yeah. out, yeah, there was only, I think, seven, seven to 11, because we had to cut out some. But anyway, that's not a lot. Some meta-analysis have, like, hundreds of studies in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they said that, like, the results from that said McNair were six times more likely um, to go to grad school if they were in that program. Yeah. That is impressive numbers. Yes. I know. I was like, <laughs> you're telling me that being there six times more likely. That's not a fluke. Mm. It's not just a one in like two chance. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm feeling really good now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have these two. Um, but now I wanted to do my own study because that's what you have to do with your dissertation. And so I had read all this research and I was like, okay, they're looking at whether or not people get into grad school, but McNair is trying to help us get first gen, low income, racial, ethnic minority students to the PhD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at that. Like, is it, is it helpful at all? For the PhD, or just like if you're in, if you get to grad school, that's like the major hurdle. Um, well, so that's yeah. that's what inspired me um, to try and figure out what that was like. Um, and needless to say, more results suggest that yeah, McNair was super helpful, not only getting to grad school, but definitely helping with the fact that they already knew how to do research. That's a big one. They were already connected to faculty mentors who could help them even after they left undergrad, which was really cool. Uh, Something that is not a surprise for you, I'm sure, is like once you're identified as being a part of an underrepresented community, a lot of times other schools will recognize you too. And so it like Mm. gave them fellowships. It gave them like, okay, we've seen you're in McNair. We're going to keep we're going to keep that because we know you're a star, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was unexpected for me because that didn't happen to me in grad school. Um, but the thing that shocked me the most was just how often people talked about how good it was to have directors in a community after McNair. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. they would say, I always know like these, these are my people. I could go to them and they would get it. They would understand like, oh, advisor trauma. 
you know, they, I could go to them for that. Or I could go to our old director and ask her, like, what should I be doing with my life? And she would totally help me out, even if I wasn't in McNair anymore. Yeah. Um, so it was really positive in terms of them, them saying that McNair helped them not only get to grad school, but get their PhD. And hopefully one day I will get data um, to look at this quantitatively, because that was just a qualitative study where I was interviewing folks um, who got their PhD. Yeah. But I can't wait to continue and give them even more evidence. Yeah, absolutely. You need to write, like, get to these Capitol Hill people and tell them, <laughs> hey, Trio works, and this is why it needs more funding. I, I want to. I, it feels like there's um like a secret to it or something like i don't know the right path or map i don't even know who to talk i can write about it i made an infographic about it i've sent it to some people but like capitol hill seems like basically grad school all over again i'm like that's a scary place that i know nothing about mm-hmm. I'm like I, I need a training on how to <laughs> infiltrate well i know there's some folks at coe that would love to have your voice uh, to amplify it further. So yeah, the, that would be, that would be fantastic for us uh, as a trio community. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, trio, what inspired your research behind trio. I, I'm going to actually do a little reference uh, to a previous podcast. So if listeners listening, you want to, what I'm about to say, if you want to reference it, it's Sergio Galvez's uh, interview. He said that trio is the, one of those government programs been, that's been created it's the highest rated accountability with accountability because they track every federal dollar that gets spent. Um, And this is not to say that other federal branches don't do a good job. It's just that we know as, as citizens, citizens of the United States, that there is some waste in government. Um, (laughs) Right. And that could be put to better use. And we feel like trio should be receiving some of that funding if it's not being put to better use elsewhere. But uh, my, my question to you is, uh, because Trio McNair inspired that research, um, what are the things uh, did, did you find out about graduate students uh, getting into graduate school and having that support? Mm-hmm. So for getting into graduate school, it was huge for them to have um, the GRE waiver. That was huge. Uh, one person actually said, that they were, they took the GRE thanks to a McNair uh, trip, which is a second big thing for them. They were able to go to a school where they wanted to go and talk to people about the GRE scores that they would need to like boost in order to make it in and be competitive, uh, which wouldn't have happened um, without that. The GRE is a huge barrier. So that was one thing that came up a lot. Uh, another one, not surprising, this happens a lot for first gens, but finding funding and knowing what funding means, like you need to go to a school that gives you full funding. Huh? People are going to pay me to go to grad school. That's news. And then being able to know what that means and negotiate and figure out like tuition versus, you know, a stipend, research hours, all of this kind of murky stuff that you don't know about as an undergrad. Yeah. Um, most would, 
I would say almost everybody said they were already used to doing so much work. Thanks to McNair. They're like, I already know how to do research. I know how to have a heavy reading load and I know how to have a job all at the same time. So like going to grad school where it's intense and you're doing all of this reading and thinking and writing all the time. They're like, whatever, this is old news. I've already been doing this for a while. Grad school. I don't feel like I need to um, take an extra year or fail or leave because they were, they were well equipped to do that. Those are just some examples, but there are many more. Right on, right on. Uh, And I love that you expanded on what that means for students going into grad school, right? Some of the challenges are are getting into that GRE waiver Mm -hmm. and being able to take the test. Um, A lot of it, like you talked about, is funding. Uh, I'm curious to know what other um, findings or uh, results did you unearth uh, with this study? I was so... um, I'm not pleasant. I wasn't surprised, but I was pleasantly uh, unsurprised to find that these were just amazing people doing good stuff outside of their PhD programs. Because I would ask them, I was asking them about their PhD experience generally, with McNair being one little sliver, you know, throughout all of it. But there were so many of them that were finding resources that we hadn't thought of. They found communities, they found, you know, Native American student groups, or they were serving in their communities, or they were using their research skills to help um, Mm. prisoners increase their literacy. And I'm like, you mean while you're getting a PhD, you're doing all of this? Okay. These people are just beyond amazing. They're giving back in so many different ways while doing this incredibly hard work of getting a PhD, um, giving back to their communities when they didn't need to, um, finding different supports when the university or the nation wasn't supporting them. Um, They're very much a give back sort of culture and not a whining sort of group. And I was Mm -hmm. just so... I was so motivated by their persistence, by their willingness to give of themselves. And they didn't think anything of it. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, to, to be uh, right, uh, the, you're researching this group and you're seeing the, the amount of work they're giving, uh, not only putting in, but also giving back. That's yes. Wow. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me that given the right amount of support, whether it's a student going through the K through 12 process or in college, given the right amount of support that a student can succeed. Uh, so what changes would you like to see be made to TRIO programs? I fully believe in that statement that you just said. I, the amount of support, anyone can make it. What I've seen is that we have these programs at different parts of the, the pipeline, but they're not connected. So I might have been, you know, an upward bound student, but I didn't know it existed. Um, For example, like it just, a lot of it seems to be happenstance that it comes across. Like I found out about McNair via email and it was not an email dedicated to first gen or low income. It was an email that went out to all students. Uh, So it, it does seem just kind of like a random, a random thing. And as a person who does 
educational research, we need to take out that randomness. We really need to direct students to the services that can support them rather than having to rely on them to find it. Um, because I think we're going to miss a lot of students that way. Uh, I also, in working on the McNair project in particular, like you said, accounting for every dollar, um, we have the data. We also have data on the different kind, the different projects people are working on, whether first gen, low income, maybe there's a certain number who are black or you know queer. There are all these different demographics that we have, um, but we don't have the data to really examine those. It's not public, at least. And mm -hmm. the data that is public is a little messy. I've tried working with it and it's not very full. So what I think we could do is have data from all of these different trio programs and say like, look, these are the supports that really matter. Mentoring X, Y, Z, right? And we can get rid of all the extra stuff and really focus in on what works. But we need the data uh, about each of those different things in order to make those claims. So that's building the bridge and then having the data um, to make the program even better, I think, would go a long ways. That's amazing. Yeah. So very much appreciate the observations and some of the feedback that you're giving because uh, and you both, both you and I, we've been in higher education, working with higher education, and we tend to start noticing buzzwords, right? Uh, <laughs> one buzzword in particular is this word persistence. Uh, what did you learn about persistence in your study? And was that a factor? Yes. Oh my gosh. You're so right about buzzwords. I wanted to, <laughs> uh, so many times my, have you, you probably have heard of adverse childhood experiences or oh, ACE yes. scores. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to go back to grad school. This is something that I wanted to look at and resilience was thrown around there. Mm -hmm. I was like, ah, oh, resilience. Yeah. That could that help explain why I made it here? Because I don't understand how I made it here. Um, so like these, these words um, and through all of my like research, what I'm noticing is that we rely on students to be their own advocates. We are not setting up support structures. We are not making uh, an equal community. We have all of these large race, class, sexist sorts of things going on in our country. And we're just like, yeah, you can make it, try hard. Mm -hmm. Find the supports that you need. No, absolutely not. We need to be finding them um, because persistence is not just um, some grit someone has inside of them. Persistence right. is the privilege that we have to have a whole set of supports helping us along the way. I had food stamps. I had mentors. I had, you know, a grandma who told me that I could do it. You know, we all have these things. And for us to just keep saying that, ooh, yes, yeah, some some seem to persist. No, yes, there are some students who seem to persist, even though they don't have as many supports. But really, we know, we know all of the systems that need to be in place for all students to persist. We're just not willing to put in the effort and the money 
in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you and many others in TRIO and higher ed, student affairs folks, we're, we're constantly trying to move the system to be something that's more equitable, but it's, oh my gosh, it's like herding cats. <laughs> that is a good analogy. Uh, it's, it very much is, right? When, we're, when you've identified good practices uh, and trying to apply that and implement that, it seems that we, we, can't, we latch on to the buzzy words and to the, the feel-good parts but we don't implement the full effect of what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We just want, uh, we just want to be in a magazine talking about our one good program rather mm-hmm. than why I don't even understand why institutions would necessarily have to apply for all of these programs. Um, I get that you would need some structures in place, but why don't we, why don't we help them? Because I'm sure students on that campus could be served by Upward Bound Student Support Services. You know, let's make it easier. Let's just make it all of good practices a blanket across all of our higher ed institutions. It would make sense. <laughs> it would make it makes a lot of sense to us, and it makes <laughs> and maybe I don't know. It, it becomes a a chaotic sound when it reaches Capitol Hill. I'm not sure, or uh, some higher level administrators, which. Um, yeah, we can definitely have a separate conversation about that. Um, yeah, the dollar signs would probably be <laughs> right, the, right, the big right. factor there. Uh, so for, for trail students and staff listening to this podcast, they may be interested to know what resources you came across to get to mm-hmm. where you want it to be. Uh, what would you like to say to them? Mm-hmm. I want, as a person who has been a faculty member, have been a teacher, in undergrad, for undergraduate students and graduate students. Um, So for the students, I want to say you are never a burden. You can ask any question. And if someone does shut you down, I would not say that you should give up on on asking someone else. Because there are so many people that made it clear to me that I was worth it. And I want you to find those people for you people you can ask your questions to uh because unfortunately we still very much live in a society where social capital matters who you know matters um i'm only in my current job right now because someone i know sent me along a job posting and this happens all the time Mm -hmm. um and so for you to build your own networks for you to find the answers to your questions. You're never going to be a burden uh, to the right people. So finding those people and keeping them in your pocket, thanking them once every, you know, a few months, it goes a long ways. Um, For the staff. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You are amazing. I, I am so thankful that you would love your job and love students enough to be in a position where you're doing so much good without much recognition of that. Um, I know you probably don't get prized for it, but I'm thankful for you. The research suggests that all of your work pays off. So that's what I want to say to them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. And we're going to have to definitely highlight that on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) PhDs are known for rigorous coursework. What kept you motivated during your doctoral program? 
I thought about quitting all the time. I, uh, sorry, my cat just decided to join us. She said, it's, oh, yeah. it's time for snuggles, mom. Um, she knows I'm talking about my PhD, probably. I'm like, oh, I gotta go support her. She's stressed out. Um, yeah, so what motivated me during my doc program would probably be the fact that someone was paying for me to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get funding and I was like, oh shoot, I can't let this go to waste. Yes, PhDs are rigorous. I was not motivated for all of it. I thought about quitting a few times, but I was motivated because someone paid for me to be there. That's not a good reason to stay in your doc program, I know, but it was motivating for me. Um, something else that motivated me during the dissertation was actually listening to all the people who were McNair scholars, hearing their stories, hearing their persistence, hearing how good they are. I felt like I had to do them the honor of letting other people hear just how amazing they were. Um, and to do that, I had to get the stupid degree. So that's that was motivating. Yeah. Um, I was also super vain. So I mentioned that I was like valedictorian in high school. And I was like, I can't peak in high school. I can't be one of those people. I got to keep going. Yeah. So I thought that the PhD was the next thing, which is, it's not. Um, But I thought that would be a marker of my success to all the haters out there. Um, Um, Yeah. (laughs) So that was motivating to me. It's almost like dropping a very an awesome like album like for almost sounded taylor-esque swift you know it, yeah. almost up to the level thank you if only if only i could be a taylor's level and, but i'm sure like it came with at least uh right a university ready to pick you up and and put you to work and do everything not not near as uh, right as a as a record deal but it's still just as good yeah, hey, I love getting paid to do things that I love. And researching, getting connect with cool people doing good things all the time. Heck yes. Yeah. If I have to get this stupid degree and not, oh my gosh, being in a PhD program, you get full funding, quote unquote, but it's not full funding. It's barely mm-hmm. enough to survive. So what motivated me was the idea that after it, I could get a job where I could afford to travel again. I was like, okay, good. We can do it. We're just going to make it and then do cool things in a job that will actually pay me well. Right. Right. So now I guess I decide the job market is insane in life. Definitely. No, it's, it was dumb for me to think that, but (laughs) it motivated me. So now we're done and I don't have to do it again. Yeah. Fantastic. Which uh, a great segue kind of to the next question is, research in the field of education is constantly growing and evolving in the area of academic development. What are some critical questions we are not asking in higher education? I love this question so much. I, I think now with COVID I'm turning into maybe one of those crazy people um, on the streets. Who's just like, let's burn it all down. Let's start over. Yeah. I mean, we've changed everything about how we've lived over the past year. So let's just, just start over. Yeah. Um, That's, that's what I would like. I don't see any good reason to go back to the old way. Um, And so 
I would like us to start asking the question of why not? What should we keep and what should we get rid of? Um, in terms of trio in particular, like what is stopping us from scaling up? Yeah. We know, we know that these things work. So why not put it everywhere? Why not Mm -hmm. just make it an automatic pipeline for every student? Not, I don't think that everybody should or wants to get a grad degree and make it all the way through McNair, but we should at least give them opportunities. Um, So that's what I want to ask. I want people to, to look me in the eyes and tell me why we can't be better. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good question. And I think something that that's giving me pause because yeah, why, why not? If we've already experienced the pandemic, we've seen what works, what doesn't uh, there's obviously people can work from home. Why aren't we instituting more policies like that, that encourage people to work from home. Um, if we're looking at financial need of people overall and the support systems, they need to complete a college degree that yep. that certainly came into focus during this pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing that? This is a very great questions. Like maternal and paternal leave absolutely for children we have we know that we have to make substantial changes uh, because we are falling apart this past year, so why not just fix it, put a lot of money in it now, and prevent the world from going in such a shock when we know it's it's going to happen again. Yeah. epidemiologists have been warning us about pandemics forever. Um, so it's going to happen again. Why not just make it to where we don't crash and burn the next time? Right. Right. Agreed. Agreed. What were some obstacles you faced or challenges that you encountered uh, during your research? So many. So many. So many. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so I mentioned wanting to quit grad school Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got to the point where I was like if I don't get an internship in Paris then I might just quit grad school I'm not kidding I'm not even I'm not joking (laughs) um thank goodness I got it I'm like I have to leave this country Mm. um this was in a different presidency where I was feeling extra fraught about the state of our nation Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to go to Paris for six months and mm-hmm. do a data analyst internship there, mm-hmm. which stupid Rachel doing a full-time job and a dissertation on top of being a PhD student in another country where you don't speak French isn't smart. Um, so that was just like one, one part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also didn't want to burden my participants Mm-hmm. Um, talking to all of the McNair alumni, they're doing great things, but they have their PhDs, which means their early career. So they might be faculty members. They might be, you know, <laughs> working at a university in non-tenure track positions. I'm like, y'all are busy. Mm-hmm. Y'all have kids, y'all have families, you have lives. Mm-hmm. Talking to some rando on the internet <laughs> Or something that may never see the light of day. Like, oh, man, I felt so much guilt about that. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm super white. Like, I, yes, I'm first-gen low-income, but I definitely don't understand the experiences of people of color. And there are many, many institutes 
um, that are mentioned in the interviews where there's just so much racism, overt uh, racism. And it was just, it was eye-opening to me, but it shouldn't have been. I definitely should have been a better, more thoughtful, understanding human before all of this. So like my whiteness definitely got in the way of me asking better questions and empathizing with my participants. Um, So those are just a few, I think generally in PhD programs, first gen and low income students, um, we don't have the support structures that we need because we don't have role models in academia. You know, ivory tower is made of people who have a lot more privilege than we do. Um, And I definitely, I would say that's not just me but I felt very, uh, I don't know, bewildered often the, the number of people who I couldn't relate to mm. in my PhD program and other first-gen students probably did too. That's mm. what the research suggests anyways. Okay. So I know this next question then becomes, and I'm going to expand a little bit on the question and kind of give you mm-hmm. like the, the space to answer because with, with graduate school and with a, achieving a, a, a doctoral program, writing this thesis, my initial question was, what was your victory or, or aha moment during grad school uh, or even during your dissertation? Uh, but I want to expand a little bit more and say, when did you finally know that I've got, I've got, I've got something here? Oh, that's a hard one. I think it was probably, I interviewed about a dozen um, TRIO alumni. And so I I think it was about the third or fourth one in, whenever I kept seeing the same things, I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's happening. I'm not just going to get a bunch of data that's all random stuff and I'm going to have to smush it together and figure out how it how it blends right but yeah about about the fourth one people really kept saying like there's no way I would have gotten a PhD without McNair and it was validating for me because that's exactly how I felt um but that it was just so consistent yeah um and so I, I kept interviewing and I kept interviewing and I kept interviewing and there was no hesitancy in any of them to suggest that McNair wasn't good. Um, so like it started around person three or four, but then man, by the end, I knew, I knew I had something because everyone was for it. And now my, Amazing. one second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're currently muted. Yeah, there we go. Somehow she muted me too. Oh, she's oh. St- she stepped over your mute button. <laughs> she's so smart. She's like, and that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing uh, that aspect of your research and your uh, your like, I've got this now moment. Like you've gathered enough information for uh, your dissertation, um, which kind of goes into the next part of the question. So gathering all that information, knowing about trio and not just McNair, but upper bound talent search, equal opportunity centers, all these trio programs and the support that they provide. 
can you give some words of wisdom uh, to the TRIO audience, whether they're students or staff? Words of wisdom. I think they're doing great things anyways. So this is just me saying you're doing great. If you wanted, I don't know, wink, wink, someone who's a quantitative researcher to help you prove that you're doing good things. I don't know who that person could be. It might be a person named me specifically who could connect you with people to give you um, just some data suggestions so that you can, you know, get more money. Yeah. Proof. I'd be happy to uh, give you some advice on any of that or just run stuff for you. It's really hard to know what the right data is and how to run the right data. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that you should just know how to do that. So if you ever want an educational psychologist um, to help you think through it, I'm all ears. Anytime for TRIO. But once someone knows, I know TRIO staff out there who have been working in their domains for decades, right? We have these people who are incredible. We just need to share all of that wealth between all of us, and then we can take over. That's what I'd love to do. Very, very good word. How about uh, participants? Participants. Um, Words of wisdom. I think for TRIO all the way down, we need them. We need you. We need people who are like us in these spaces because right now the world looks very white, very upper class, very straight, very whatever. And it doesn't make it good that it's like that. We need an infiltration of all of us and all the different ways that we express ourselves and that we just live, um, And so if in whatever situation that you're in, you don't feel like it's okay to be you. Mm -hmm. I just want to challenge you to say, we need, we need you. Um, And I can't, I can't wait to see where, where the world looks like, I don't know, a better place when all of us are there. Not really wisdom, but just rock on. Those are great words. Yeah. Rocking on. Wonderfully said. Dr. Rachel Renbarger, thank you so much for being on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. It is such an honor to have interviewed you and discuss your research and really get your origin story as well. Uh, I hope you join me again in the future. That's something that you'd want to do again. Absolutely. I can talk about McNair any day, all day. I am so thankful for this chance. Uh, I've I really, really love getting to talk to other people who also love TRIO. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure on this end. Uh, Can you do us the honor in signing off? Absolutely. Hello, this is Dr. Rachel Rinbarger. I'm an educational psychologist, thanks to the TRIO McNair program at the University of Oklahoma. I have since conducted research on TRIO McNair programs in multiple studies, and I can confidently say that TRIO works. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a TRIO program? 
Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk Trio. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk Trio. We want to get your story to the public. What a great episode with Dr. Rachel Ranberger from the University of Oklahoma Trio McNair program. Dr. Ramberger, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your educational journey and the doctoral process with us and for sharing your thoughts regarding education. Remember, you too can be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Send us a message via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also nominate a staff, student, or an entire program to be on the podcast by using our email. Let's talk trio at gmail.com. Again, the email is L E T S T A L K T R I O at gmail.com. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Vielpando, Rosario O'Reilly, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage of the podcast. You too can be a patron of the podcast. Head on over to Patreon and select your patron level. Our entry patron level starts at a dollar a month. A dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. We also have advertising space available. If you own a business, go over to Patreon, select your corporate sponsorship level. At $100 a month, we will run your ad on this podcast for every episode we publish in that month. I want to take a moment to recognize our honorary members of the Let's Talk Trio podcast team. Scott Kendall, Tony Ho, and Roderick Chambers. The Let's Talk Trio podcast team is John Russell, editor, music producer, and audio engineer. Amelia Castañeda, script supervisor, marketing manager, social media manager, and producer. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. Thank you all so much for the continued support of the Let's Talk Trio podcast, and we will catch you on the next episode.